This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. My guest for this half hour is going to be Chris Meredith, who is the Director of Research, Co-Chief Investment Officer, and a Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Chris, thanks for taking some time to be with us on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me on, Jeremy. Uh, you know, we've had Patrick on our program in the past, but maybe for for listeners, new listeners on the radio, give our, give ourselves uh, people a little bit of background of O'Shaughnessy uh, and yourself, and, and what what you got, what your firm focuses on. Yeah, sure. Uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management's a firm. It's been around uh, since Jim O'Shaughnessy originally wrote the book What Works on Wall Street in 1996, which was pioneering work looking at uh, factor investing and, and using individual characteristics for investment strategies. It was born out of his work. Uh, from his previous work, Invest Like the Best, where he, he recognized that the, the key aspect of successful investors was picking a style and keeping with it. And so his next question was, what styles work? And so with that, he, he, he started a firm that was focused exclusively on using factor investing to try to generate excess returns. Um, since then, you know, he, we've grown the firm. I joined with him back in 2005. And uh, my role now as co-chief investment officer is uh, helping just set the investment mandate for the firm, including research, portfolio management, and uh, trading. And so uh, we, we run that together and uh, you know, have, a, have an asset base of call it around $5 billion in, in, in clients and long-only equity uh, that's purely quantitatively focused. And so factors are a hot topic, uh, and the factor d- discussion is, is value ever going to work ever again? We've had sort of a long stretch of the dominating growth styles or big cap tech. Um, right now, this year, it's the cloud computing stocks. What's, what's your sense? Is value, what are the factors you'd say your firm believes in the most, uh, and then we could come to value? Yeah, sure. Value for us is obviously it's, it's a key principle and one that we have a strong belief in. You know, and uh, it's it's not the easiest thing to go around and tell people about right now because value has had a a long run since 2007 of underperforming growth, uh, and in particular, this first quarter is the, uh, the 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 largest underperformance we've seen for value since the dot com. Um, you know, what we believe is that value works. You know, because there and you can see the mechanics for it for why it works, which is. Um, we wrote a paper with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, myself, and um, an anonymous blogger known as Jesse Livermore, and we, we unpacked the mechanics of it through a paper called Factors from Scratch. And what you can see is that you know there's value companies do have some near-term distress, so they trade at a cheaper multiple based off of trailing earnings. But what we've seen is that that distress is typically overwrought inside of the marketplace, so the pessimism is too high. In fact, we're able to quantify it based on future earnings. There's you know part where earnings will revert over the next call it 36 months back to normal earnings growth for the rest of the industries. Um, and what happens is that those firms trade at a PE of about 7.6, where if you valued them off of perfect insight on future earnings, they should trade at a PE of 9.2. So you're getting a 17% discount that unwinds over the next three years. But 
So obviously, the most recent market environment has has pushed against that. You know, part of that has to do with that growth companies, in particular, since 2007, have essentially met what their their usually high expectations are, which is the opposite side of that, where they're priced for really strong future growth, and normally they don't meet it. What's happened is these companies, in fact, over the last 12 years have met it. But that doesn't mean that's going to continue. In fact, uh, some of the work that we've done historically has shown that there have been periods of prolonged underperformance before, um, but it can it can revert back and, and have it where value can be a very successful investment strategy in the future. It's sort of interesting that the the comment on that the growth companies are actually delivering on their above average expectations for the first time in, in a long time. In the environment of what's been this year in particular, sort of large cap growth versus small cap value, any commentary on how if you if the that, that average PE on small cap value was discounted before, where that discount is today, how that compares to history? Yeah, in fact, we just uh, a couple of colleagues of mine at O'Shaughnessy, um, Jamie Catherwood and Travis Fairchild, just wrote a paper talking about a historic opportunity in small cap value. Um, so what's happened is, you know, I talk about this this mean reversion where there's distress on companies, and then there's um, you know, call it a, a rebound effect that can happen as as that distress gets uh, through revaluation of the multiples goes back to normal. Um, what's what we've seen in this this part? First of all, one the, you know, there's two stories to the first quarter. One was that. January growth companies continued to rocket along, and, and that was one where, um, you know, we were looking at this, and we had already thought that the markets were the growth side was overpriced, and I can talk more about that before that came that, that came in. But then, obviously, you know, COVID nineteen hit, and we saw value just get penalized even more on the way down. So on the way up, when the market's going up, value underperformed with large growth, increasing the expectations, and then on the way down in in, in um, the recession. You know, the expectations of the recession from COVID-19 got baked in, value got penalized more. Part of that is that value companies, you know, have more in their near-term earnings uh, just on their valuation-based versus growth companies where they're priced off of whatever the, the, the future growth is and have more in their terminal value if you're doing a DCF analysis. Value companies tend to also be more physically plant-based you know, based and, and higher PPE requirements, and, and uh, that's one where those companies, you know, just got hurt more. There's obviously, again, then you're, let's call it as a, a secondary effect, oil market collapse with a breakdown of OPEC plus that energy was predominantly on the value side of the ledger and that hurt on that side. Then there's interest rate cuts, you know, where, you know, not everything value and growth is, is related to the interest rates, but obviously because there's equity risk premium and risk free rates when you're doing your valuation models. But um, what happened is it asymmetrically still can impact what happens on the value side of the ledger because of that difference in cash flow duration. Um, but the biggest component that we think was, was just this um, the, what was happening was there was just general solvency risk and, and distress in the financial system that was getting priced in, right? If you were looking at what was going on with the, um, the, first of all, the financial system, there was just questions about pricing. There was no bid on certain asset classes, and that's where the Fed stepped in and basically backstopped the markets for, for the, the low on March 24th. But there was also individual company distress that was getting priced in, and that's where the, a lot of the value companies, particularly you saw at airlines, you know, hotels, cruise lines, um, and the government basically stepped in and said, we're, we're going to backstop, you know, companies and make sure that there's, there's people that are going to be employed through this. And since then, you've been seeing this, this come back. And small, small cap, you know, had it where, in particularly, it was getting, you know, the most distressed because those are the companies that are the most vulnerable, right? And since then, we've been seeing, you know, as more new good news has come out, there's been just a reversion on small value. And this is where, again, the, the piece that we wrote was showing how strong of a dislocation this is based on trailing multiples. Um, what's interesting is because what's getting priced in is kind of like this, this V-shape where, yes, there's going to be a knockout of, call it, earnings in the, 
in the next 12 months, you're getting, uh, you, you posted something on Twitter about, you know, how small cap looks the most overvalued in history because of the next 12 months. Um, but the, the truth is, like, the next 12 months are just a small component of the overall value. If the company's a going concern, you know, there's an opportunity here that you're going to be able to get in a company in a really attractive valuation. And you're seeing that even today. So what happened today is the, uh, the employment numbers obviously were a surprise on the upside. And, you know, if you look at Coif and, and, and their gap between, you know, small cap value versus large growth, it's showing small cap value of like 6.1% today versus 2.1% for large growth. So there's just tremendous split between what's going on inside of small value and large growth. Yeah, I've got that Coifin monitor. I've by myself had been moving there. I sort of put on Twitter also that who knew all I had to do was invite you for a radio show for small value to uh, start working again. So we have to do this again. Yeah, if, uh, I, uh, if I had that lever, I would have pulled it a long time ago. <laughs> um, no, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's sort of you got this new pandemic factor that is you know the shutdown is is cloud computing, and uh, you got the opening is small value. It sort of completely reverses on signs of the reopening. So interesting on that. So do you have, in, in this historic opportunity conclusion, I mean, if, if you were to bottom, boil it down to like a bottom line number, like how undervalued do you think small cap value is compared to its history? Is there, is there a number or is it just... Well, the, the, the numbers are, when we, when we look at the valuations, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the tail end, right? So in, if you, depending on what you're looking at, right? So if you're looking at the, you know, the multiples, um, and, you know, there's been multiple people out there, Cliff Assis from AQR, talking about multiples and how attractive they are within the small cap space and trying to use those as timing. Um, you know, we're in, in, call it like the, the I think, 1.8% of the time it's been multiples that are this, this far out versus earnings yield versus treasuries, earnings yield gaps versus the rest of the market or the, the growth side of the ledger, all of which is showing that you're, you're obviously in this, this, this far end event, right, of what's going on. So we're talking with Chris Meredith, Director of Research, Co-Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager Shaughnessy Asset Management. This firm focuses a lot on value investing, which has been really prime focus. Chris, there's a lot of research on, in this debate, is value dead forever, just on what are the right value factors? Uh, and you know, the historical academics have focused on book value as a factor. What is the factors O'Shaughnessy likes? I know uh, some of it tends to focus on buybacks, which is another political football hot topic of the day. Uh, is buyback? also a factor that, that you're worried about here at the moment? So, so first of all, for value, you know, we, we like, first of all, Jim's original book had, had a key point that came from it, which is you know, the best way to invest is factors are good, but combining multiple factors is better. Um, so for us, we like to look at operating metrics, but not any single one, because any single one can have, you know, uh, let's call bias or, or limitations to it. So we like to look at price to sales, just top line revenue, tough to mess with, historically consistent over time. We like to look at price to earnings, just to, you know, get the bottom line, you know, call it accounting measure of what you think the economic value of the company is generating. We look at like an EBITDA enterprise value number as well to look at more like a gross cash flow and then, a, and then free cash flow as well. And we combine those together to create you know, one singular value theme that we push through. Um, one of the things that we, we do have some debate around and, and have taken a position on is, is price to book, um, you know, which for us, you know, X Financials has been, has been more of a limited factor, particularly over the last 20 years. And you know, there was another great paper by a colleague, Travis Fairchild, and I wrote, I wrote one as well talking about the impact of buybacks, but as well as um, you know, what's happening with uh, intangibles and brand and other ways of valuation that just don't show up inside of book value. And so what we've seen is that, you know, while price to book can be effective, it's noisy compared to some of the other metrics that are out there. Um, you know, so we like to focus on the operating metrics overall. 
Um, by the way, one of the key aspects, again, on that, that combining of factors, which was a, a key aspect of the, the paper that was just put out on the opportunity small value, is not just to look at value, but you want to use other characteristics with it because um, potentially there's ways that you will capture distressed companies that are cheap for a reason inside of value. So we like combining it with other characteristics, like particularly momentum right now, right? So if you think about momentum as a way to keep you out of areas that are structurally impaired, particularly like energy, um, there's a good way that you can use that and combine it as a filtering mechanism to say, okay, buy cheap but not, not companies that are, that are priced for, for, for a limited time on this in the market. And then there's other factors like financial strength, earnings quality, earnings growth. All of these, again, can be used to avoid distressed companies. The, the analysis I particularly liked was showing that 92% of bankruptcies in small cap had been in the worst decile of one of these characteristics that we used to filter on in, inside of our process. Um, for your question yeah. about buybacks, you know, we, we believe strongly in it. We think that it is, you know, a signal, whereas, the, you know, there, there is, again, a political question. The question is, you know, are companies essentially um, cannibalizing their future growth by returning capital to shareholders through share repurchases? Is it a mechanism for, you know, um, having just CEOs basically try to, try to bump up their EPS in order to achieve their own options goals, et cetera? And we take the other side of that. We, ha we believe that. These are companies that are trading at a valuation that is below what's, you know, the average in the marketplace. We can see that inside of the, the numbers. They have better earnings quality. They have stronger free cash flow. They are still investing in their companies. And we have done the analysis in a piece called Buyback Bulls and Bears, showing as well is that these are not, you know, there's no change in compensation between CEOs of these companies versus CEOs that aren't buying back their shares and, you know, show through the mechanics of how difficult it is to, to bump EPS through share repurchases. All of this comes back to have us think that what we're seeing is that the companies that are repurchasing shares, you know, on average, these are companies that are just being good stewards of capital. They're looking around in the marketplace, and rather than, you know, investing in, call it a negative ROI, negative growth for, for investing inside of their firm, they're saying, you know what, we've used the capital we can to grow, and let's return the rest of it, particularly because, you know, cash is a dead asset. There's no, there's no benefit from keeping it in, in the sense of, you know, you're not going to earn interest on it. So right now in this environment so let's just let's just give it back to the shareholders yeah and i remember years ago you guys had sort of the high conviction buybacks piece that talked about uh the more buybacks you do the more you know five percent plus or something i'm, re I'm recalling was one of the the, the the strong signals on on things being undervalued the the cash on the balance sheets is right now you could say you know i think actually one of the, the hallmarks is japan who's who's been known as as having really deflated roes but the cash on the balance sheet is 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 proving well during the pandemic it's, it seems like uh, maybe maybe they were they were thoughtful ahead of the time. Yeah, that's, that's the hard part, which is, you know, trying to foresee an event like COVID-19, which is, you know, hindsight is obviously going to look and say, yeah, of course, we should have spotted it. But, you know, it's incredibly difficult to, to anticipate that something like this, where you're going to see just the fastest bear market ever. And, you know, the unemployment chart is going to look highly skewed to this time, you know, time period for the, for the foreseeable future. So, so maybe let's, let's pivot we, the conversation a little bit. So we've talked about historic opportunity and, and small value. Where, When you think about the firm that you guys are focused on, one of the big things O'Shaughnessy has been working on is, is sort of a separate management account-oriented uh, business, but now you have a new platform uh, way of trying to think about how you're working with clients. Do you want to talk a little bit about your new Canvas platform and, and what your, your goal is, how you see that serving the investor community? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I gave a little bit of the history of O'Shaughnessy, you know, and, and just understand the components we have in place, which is, you know, we're fact, factor expertise that we've built up over years of knowledge, starting with Jim and myself and other researchers on the team, 
and building infrastructure around that and just as a, as a, call it a research engine. We do have a separate account platform, so the predominant part of our business, you know, sub-advised or, or otherwise is through separate accounts. And so we've built up also a ton of infrastructure around managing those separate accounts so you can do it scalably with a really small footprint of, of staff. And then the other aspect, which is that technologically, we have a philosophy in-house of building versus buying, where we have been, you know, strong technological capabilities that sits alongside the investment team um, that have the ability to, you know, customize and build solutions so we're able to implement our investment views in the right way. Now, what's interesting is, you know, Patrick became CEO two years ago, and, you know, he, he was evaluating all the asset pieces that we had in place. And in having discussions with clients, and what, what became really apparent to him was that we take all of this investing knowledge and all of these capabilities, and then what we do is we bundle them up into single products. Uh, it's one single point on the risk-return spectrum for our ideas in an area like large value or small value, right? And so and what happens is those, those strategies are engineered, and particularly in, in a risk profile that Mainly was Jim O'Shaughnessy when he first built the products, which is an extremely long time horizon. I've never met an investor that has as long of a time horizon as he has, which is, you know, he's always thinking about 20, 30, you know, 50 years for what can happen with his investments. So the idea was how can we turn this inside out rather than having these small access points to the firm, how can we make it a broader access point? And part of this is developing a way for the advisor community essentially to come to us and say, I would like access to your ideas, but I would like to do it at this point on the risk return spectrum. And so what we've been able to do is create an investment platform that gives them access to that, and they are able to engineer solutions that match what their business is, right? And now the interesting part of this, first of all, is one, we, we have um, the way that we're doing this is we're blending our very return-focused active strategies, factor strategies with a passive component. Um, we engineered with it a um, a... We've always had that separate account platform where it's tax managing accounts. So we built a tax loss harvesting algorithm comparable to any in the industry that's out there, the other solutions, and have that where it's able to um, create tax loss harvesting benefits, tax alpha, on the passive side of the ledger. Um, so we pair those together. We are also have built expertise in, in ESG solutions. You know, have built out 32 custom themes of different ways that people want to look at putting, you know, socially responsible themes into their portfolios. Um, we put some some basic fixed income through ETFs on the platform, and then most of all, we wrapped it with a, a user interface that's intuitive and easy to access, where the advisors can set investment templates, load up um, client portfolios, load up prospect portfolios, see what the transa the transaction costs are for transitioning, see what the tax impact is going to be for transitioning. And, you know, it's turned into a platform that has dr dramatically increased our partnerships with the advisors. You know, it's one where we feel like we're, instead of offering a product, we're offering them a comprehensive solution for what their investment needs are. And the, the parts for this are there's real benefit to them where, you know, they are, a lot of the times the advisors are building their investment models and then figuring out how to figure out the manager selection to put into those models and, and putting the pieces together. And we're offering a solution that allows for, us to manage all those pieces so they can you know, and help with their, their business model and help, help scale what's going on with their, their investment solutions. And in terms of as you see that, I mean, I, I understand it to be a limited group of people working with today, but that you, you, you'll probably be opening it up to a much broader set, uh, if not already. Um, any, any thoughts on where that goes for, for your firm? Yeah, Patrick, first of all, the benefit of Patrick doing his podcast is he has, uh, you know, made connections with all kinds of people in technology. 
um, you know, and other people that are entrepreneurs and figuring out their firms. And he's come back with some incredibly insightful strategic ideas. And the, the, the one is we, we get our first small cohort of, of uh, advisors that we want to work with, and then we help them as much as possible. Um, so what we're doing is we are learning their businesses. We are learning how they are putting their portfolios together, how they are talking to their clients, um, how they are positioning the investment solutions that we offer, and then listening to them. You know, what are the investment gaps? What are the pieces that we should be adding? What are the reporting needs? What are the, um, you know, all the things like with the, the, the portal I talked about for transitioning clients came out of um, those conversations where it's understanding that the advisor, you know, is not starting with just a, 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 a typically a, you know, a counseling in cash. They're starting with legacy investments that had their own tax consequences. So how do we structurally optimize around those embedded gains in order to get to what they, as quickly as possible, what they see as the investment solution? So all of these are about working with them and, and understanding them as deeply as possible and providing them with the best service as possible right now. So we can, one, and with the lessons that we're going to learn from that, we're going to just continue to expand it. The, the canvas we think of as a platform, we're going to continue to expand call it capabilities that will scale across the advisor community once we decide to open it up more. Uh, but right now it's the process of building out and just expanding that functionality to match what, how these people, how these first 10, we call them, the first 10 clients are, are integrating with, with the canvas platform. No, you guys are one of the groups I, I follow quick, you know, closely, um, and uh, a great podcast that Patrick produces. Thank you for coming on, sharing some insights on what you think is happening in this historic market moves and value and small cap value in particular. It's been a it's a good day, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us on the program today. No problem. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.